Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Editor-in-Chief, Jonah Bennett, and uh, I'm joined, as always, by Wolf Tyvee. Hey. And we're also joined by a special guest this week, Nick Casamatis, uh, who is the founder of Dry.io, a platform that makes software a thousand times faster to write and lets people create and moderate their own social networks, search engines, and other software services. Uh, before this, uh, Nick was the founder of Skyphrase, an AI startup acquired by Yahoo, the head of Samsung's North American AI Research, and a tenured professor in AI. So Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hey guys, uh, it's good to be talking to you. As always, uh, it's about that time of the week to to reach into the reader mailbag and uh, pull out a, a question of the week. Um, oof. I don't know about this one, guys. Um, it's going to be <laughs> how likely are the recent U.S. military reports on UFO sightings to be proof of ancient aliens? Uh, I guess I guess I can go first on this. Um, I don't I don't know about ancient aliens. I mean, I guess if there are aliens, maybe there are ancient aliens, too. Who knows? But um I'm definitely excited to see what comes of that stuff. I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really curious. I like it. It looks like maybe there actually is something there, or maybe it's just like a mistake with the instruments that they haven't figured out how to deal with, or I, I don't know. It's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely going to be, going to be interesting. Nick. Well, I guess they would have to be ancient if they uh, made it all the way here. Uh, given how far away they are, so um, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, I say it's good proof. <laughs> yeah, I believe I mean, it. How long have they been here? That's the big question. Did the aliens build the pyramid? Did the aliens create mankind? This, yeah, no, no, yeah, these I mean, questions will all be featured in the New York Times over the next six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it, it, it turns out that uh, that the aliens actually ended up seeding life here in the first place. And yeah, they, uh, they've actually been flying around for four billion years here. I mean, look, look, it, it, it all makes sense, right? There's, look at, the, you know, the, the, the blocks of the pyramids. Where did they come from? They couldn't have, they didn't have the technology to transport those and, uh, you know, stack them all on top of each other. So. I know. I mean, it's a lot of blocks. Like, you do, you do the math and it's like, I don't know how they did that in that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. Yeah, it's got to be aliens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I mean, well, I... I mean, I, I sorry, I, I like this topic. I want to talk a little bit more about this topic. So, like, look, if it's actually ancient aliens, if if the current aliens are, or if they are aliens and they are also ancient aliens, I guess the the thing obviously is they're not like here to conquer us. It's it's some kind of like probe, right? It they probably some alien civilization sends a probe. It goes to random solar systems and like monitors things. So you have occasionally something flying around. Um, that that would be like the best hypothesis. Anyways, yeah, that, and, that's what I gotta say. And, and and basically, if if uh, if the current aliens now follow the same historical pattern and it seems their main activities are impregnating random people mutilating <laughs> cattle uh making really cool crop circles and giving us new technology and you know if those are the trade-offs we have to make for for new technology i mean where do you think bluetooth came from dude i don't know is is, is bluetooth that good that it's likely to be alien technology <laughs> no it sucks man it sucks <laughs> all right that was a joke that was a joke um, all right 
that's enough of that. Uh, Wolf, I'll, I'll let you take it over from here to uh, get us started on some AI questions. Great. All right. Thanks, Jonah. Um, yes, thanks so much for coming on, Nick. Um, yeah, no problem. I, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think we have a lot of interesting things to cover. Palladium obviously is interested in big questions that are important to the future of human society and like how we should kind of how we should choose to to steer our society. And I think AI is one of these big kind of black hole issues where where I haven't seen a lot of like really intelligent thought on how this is going to affect things. So what we've been wanting to do is talk to a few more people who are experts and start building up that knowledge, at least among ourselves and our audience, so that we can, you know, think more effectively about this issue. So I'm really glad to have you on. Yeah, I've been following you guys for a while now. So I'm, I'm uh, honored to be here. Thanks. Great. Um, yeah. So Nick, let's go over your career a little bit. So we know kind of what we're dealing with. So you started in the nineties, uh, doing sort of, uh, AI research in, in the area of sounds like, I, I think you said natural language processing, trying to get to human level on that using a variety of techniques, um, both symbolic and, and, uh, neural network type techniques. And yeah, that's correct. My theory at the time was, and still is, that that um, the human uh, intelligence is a very diverse thing, and so one single method isn't going to be enough to, uh, uh, one single approach isn't going to be enough to solve it. So what we need is multiple approaches and to find a way to integrate them together. Uh, and I, uh, that's what I was my research was on creating hybrid uh, reasoning uh, techniques that would um, enable computers to uh, have uh, human ability, human like abilities in their uh, in, in their intelligence. Okay, so that's actually an interesting question. I mean, just to interrupt the the career recap, I guess we'll do this as we go through. But um, in terms of like, what is the fundamental nature of of human intelligence or intelligence in general? So it sounds like your thesis is that it's not likely to be kind of a single thing, a single algorithm that that um, that has you know a wide range of capabilities, but rather. Um, a cooperating system of, of many different capabilities. Um, like another, another way you could sort of, um, parse, I guess the, the current evidence is like our current, uh, our current algorithms, um, handle kind of different aspects, different easier aspects of, of what is possible given like a, a, a core, general AI algorithm, like, you know, the deep learning handles this, this ability to like, look at a lot of data and approximate its structure. And then the symbolic stuff has, has sort of like ability to approximate the, the, uh, like the grammar of things. And then you have planning techniques, which are, you know, the ability to like string actions together to accomplish goals. Um, I could sort of imagine an, a single technique kind of doing all of these, but, but like, obviously we don't know what that would look like, but are you saying that, like, I'm kind of curious about what your opinion is on this. Like, is it likely to be that there is that single technique or is it going to be more like a system of com of uh, cooperating uh, capabilities? I think it'll be more of a system of cooperating capabilities and uh, a little bit more precisely sort of as a system that can sort of take on the characteristics of one technique versus the other, depending on which part of the problem it's working on at any given time. Okay, so like yeah. A, th yeah, go ahead. But so you're t you are talking about, though, like a, a single like learning, planning, executing al type algorithm rather than like, okay, we take deep learning and we like glue it to this other thing in this particular way. 
It's sort of a middle ground between the, t- the two. Okay. It's sort of like a shapeshifter. So it's it's like a a single thing that can become mostly symbolic sometimes, mostly something else other times. Um, and so that's that's how I think of it. It's it's yeah. a hard thing to describe in sort of one of those. It's not one or the other really. It's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Well, and I guess like we don't know what it looks like, so obviously it's really hard to describe. Right. <laughs> um, um, but. Yeah, so so like we would have to like make breakthroughs in kind of going up a level of abstraction to something where where you actually um, like like to speak kind of mathematically. I think I think you need my topology is not good enough, but you need like sort of like smooth spectrum between these different. Like currently, we have a bunch of points in the space, and we would need to be able to like smoothly navigate between them and that that would require like a higher level of ontology of what's even going on there yeah that's one way to put it um another way to look at it sort of if you want to get really geek out mathematically is is to say that um you know you look a lot of methods are assume your problem space is continuous um right. and fairly dense and if you look at a lot of reasoning stuff we do it's very uh much higher dimensional uh less dense much more sparse discrete yeah and so uh, you know, how do you basically reconcile those two in a single system? And if you think of something even like a conversation, you're using some of the continuous stuff to sort of understand, convert the sound signal into words, but then you're using some of the more discrete stuff to understand what the words are trying to mean and what, the, what your goal is, what your plan is in your conversation. And so integrating those two sort of at a sub-second time, time uh, frame is sort of an amazing thing people can do. And, and uh, right. that's the challenge. Yeah. And I guess, I guess like one of the important things there is, is there isn't necessarily a hard boundary between like the different capabilities. It's like they kind of, as you were saying, they kind of flow into each other and take on different characteristics depending on, on sort of just the parameterization of what it's doing. That's correct. So like every, any single, so like when I'm trying to understand what you're trying to achieve by saying a particular sentence, I'll, I'll take into account sort of like the, the tone you've used or, or the right. emphasis you've used, which is a very continuous thing. So it's like every step of the symbolic algorithm needs to be informed by the continuous algorithm and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, like one, one way to sort of apply this to current AI techniques is like you've got the deep learning thing where it does this very fixed ontology pars of its input data and you don't have like online sort of back propagation where it's like, you know, you point the thing at a picture and it's like, oh, I think it's a cat. And then, and then like, maybe there's one thing that the human brain can do is like, actually we have information that it's probably a dog. Um, and that like propagates back up, up the like compute chain to like restructure the conceptual pars of, of the image. Um, and that's something that's like very much this like two way online kind of dynamic thing that that the current algorithms don't do. That's correct. And you can take it even a step further, sort of that part of deciding how to propagate backwards. Like, let's say you're shooting a basketball and you miss and you miss the hoop by by foot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you missed it because someone because you just didn't push hard enough, then the thing to do is push harder. But if you missed it because someone blocked it, then the thing to do is to sort of deal with the blocker somehow. And right. so even how you sort of correct your error back into the back propagation depends on the, some reasoning about the cause of the error. And that's something that's really lacking right now. in a lot of sort of techniques right. that people are raving about. Right. So, okay. So we're talking about this like unification between the, the more symbolic discrete type reasoning and the more continuous, um, sort of differentiable type reasoning. That's right. 
Okay, cool. So that was the subject of your research. And then you spun that out into a company in natural language processing. That's right. Yeah. So we had a technology that called, it was, the company was called Skyphrase. We had a technology that let you um, understand very complex queries uh, in natural language. So something like find me the last three emails uh, Mary sent that didn't mention a spreadsheet, uh, something like that. Um, that still today is state of the art. I mean, no one else can do stuff like that. As yeah. Far yeah. That's tell. really, that's really tricky. Yeah. Um, like even, even doing that with, uh, even doing that with like very well controlled, discrete, uh, programming languages can, I mean, it's, it, it's doable, but, but like there's all kinds of weird corner cases in it and, and difficulties in, in like SQL databases and so on. That's where right. like the theory basically is there. We basically know what to do, but it's also actually kind of tricky to maintain those things and work with those things. That's right. Yeah. So that's cool. Um, and then you guys got acquired. Right. Yeah. We were acquired by Yahoo in uh, 2013. Um, Great. I, I joined them. I led their natural language, under, uh, deep natural language understanding team there for about three years. Yeah. Um, and then after that, you, you went to Samsung, is that That's right? That's correct. Yeah, I headed their uh, North American AI research. And our goal there was to, uh, you know, look ahead a few years into the future and uh, see what uh, AI made possible and to make that possible. Great. And then you've, but you've now left that position and, and you're working on your own company now. Yes, yes. Dry.io, our goal is to, uh, you know, uh, make software a thousand times faster to write. Um, and the, the, that has a lot of impact, basically sort of software is becoming like energy where it's, where it's becoming this input to the entire economy and all of society. Right. And as we know when energy prices go up that the price of, uh, that the whole economy collapses, progress collapses. And I'm claiming software right now is like $10,000 a barrel oil. Um, and we're really right. in this giant sort of depression right now that we don't even know about because we've never seen sort of uh, $50 a barrel software. And right. So like, we're trying- like we, we have this incredible resource in computers and like many, many, many things that they could do, but actually getting the computers to do the thing we want is really, really expensive, which is why, uh, why is like so few people end up writing software and, yeah. and software ends up this, being this pretty centralized um, endeavor. That's correct. Yeah. And that's one of our goals is when you make software virtually free to write, a lot of the centralization and the sort of dysfunction that happens from that goes away. So anybody can, if anybody can build their own search engine or anybody can build their own social network, um, then uh, it's a lot, then it's, there's a lot more competition between these. It's a lot harder for mm-hmm. one to have these quasi governmental sort of power to sort of surveil you and uh, censor you. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, we could have a lot of conversations about that topic, but I definitely want to get really into the meat of the AI stuff. Sure. So, um, yeah. So the first thing is like with AI, there's, there's a few different concepts that get conflated. Um, and like, you know, a lot of people are sort of actively complicit in this conflation. Um, but there's, there's like the kind of advanced statistical techniques that, that, that kind of, uh, are represented by, things approaching deep learning then there's like and the sort of function approximation and and all that kind of stuff that goes on in the deep learning field then there's the sort of narrow ai type symbolic reasoning planning etc so these are all like varieties of narrow ai which usually once they become like really sort of standard practice they cease to kind of be um called ai but but um they are 
currently like lumped under that heading but then you have this whole other thing which is kind of like what really excites people which is well what if we could create artificial minds artificial agents who are like as fully capable as we are or more um and and have robots that that you know had had full uh full ability to like independently come to understand the world and act in it um and so like i guess like the first big thing that that we need to distinguish is is between those like the various things that go under the label of ai like so you, people talk about the artificial general intelligence thing and the narrow and narrow ai thing um and and i think these things like get conflated a lot so uh so we should deconflate them and i think you've you've had some thoughts in this area yeah definitely i mean i think you know, I mean, um, usually what happens in the history, so what we've seen in the last five years or so, five or 10 years, uh, that, you know, machine learning and deep learning have, have really hit public consciousness. And, right. uh, and, and you have a lot of maximalist thinking that basically, wow, we've just made this amazing result. We can sort of make a better Go player. Um, mm -hmm. And people get excited about that. And they think we can do anything with enough data computation. And so they think they're working on AGI because they think their method can do anything. Um, and, uh, but they're wrong. And, uh, historically there've been several waves of this. There was a wave when AI just started, uh, that people thought just computers could do anything pretty easily. Then there was this wave where search algorithms were going to do it. Then rule-based algorithms in a, these search was in the sixties, roughly rule-based algorithms in the seventies, expert systems in the early eighties. There's a neural net wave in the later eighties, early nineties. And so there's, now there's another neural net wave. So it's, it's happened over and over again. And, and so... Um, yeah, I mean, again, everybody, if you ask a lot of people in the field, they will say they're working on general AI, um, because they think their method can do everything. Um, but in fact, if you look at people who are really taking that seriously, uh, and actually, you know, building a single artifact, a single thing that can do multiple kinds of intelligence, like in one system, no one's really working on that. Cause, cause even the deep mind stuff, they're training a new network for every particular problem they work on, for example. And so really it seems like a method that can be used broadly, but really any single neural network can't do, can only do one thing at a time. And it's very narrow. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is a good, uh, good insight. Yeah. That, that, that people are, are not necessarily like conflating them, um, like it's not just the discourse that's conflated them, but people are the people actually working on the stuff are sometimes like, "Hey, we think this is general," but but uh, in your opinion, they're wrong. Um, yeah, I've definitely seen like you you talk to the you talk to the people like working on scaling up these these big uh, deep learning problems to like play video games and so on. They're like, "Yeah, maybe this method is just general." Like you know, you just throw enough compute and data at it, and maybe it can do anything. And you know, you, you sort of the obvious objection is like, well, look, human intelligence doesn't need this huge amount of data to learn to do the simplest things. Um, That's correct. And, and but, go ahead. But but like the 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 response to that, which I think is is has some validity, is like, well, actually, there's this whole like evolutionary pre-training of humans, which is humans have, you know, four billion years of evolutionary ancestry in tuning a system that that is um you know capable of responding to a variety of circumstances that has those like kind of it has preconceptions that are well suited to this world to, to the world no I, I actually don't take that argument i i don't actually believe that argument entirely sure. but i think it is sort of a valid thing it's an interesting point i guess 
I mean, whatever pre-training there is has been condensed into however many genes we have, right? Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like, like that's, that's an important thing. It's like, we can actually quantify this. The size of the genome is like a few megabytes and at most half of it is expressed in the brain. Right. So, you know, like you're talking about, um, well, you're not talking about like the scale of some of these neural networks where, where people are starting to talk about, oh, well, maybe we need like a billion nodes or whatever, right? There's that, and there's also basically um, uh, the, the, the amount of training data. So, for example, you know, newborn right. horses walk very quickly, right? Um, and so, you know, they don't have a lot of data, obviously, to do that. They just get up and start walking. So, yeah, but, but they get the data, like, through their genome, basically. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But but whatever it is, it's condensed. Yeah, you're right. So it's, it's condensed down, condensed. And, and it's not a bunch of uh, it's not tens of millions of nodes in that sense. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, and there's another mathematical way of putting it, though. So okay, great. It, it, is that uh, is that um, you know if if you look at a lot of the things that machine learning and deep learning have been good at, they're very it's what we call dense spaces. So there are things like speech recognition, right? And there's only like dozens of phonemes in the entire human language. Right. Um, so you could literally sit there and get tens and hundreds of millions of people speaking and figure out every single possible way to express a single phoneme. And you'll do, get a pretty good speech recognition system. If you look right. at something like a sentence a, in a number of words, like let's say there's 10,000 words in a working vocabulary and there's 10... You know, there's 10 words in a sentence, then the state space, you know, if, again, mathematically to put it, the, the number of possible sentences you can put together is, is not infinitely, but almost virtually infinitely greater than the number of phonemes there are. And, um, and so therefore it's impossible to cover every single possible sentence that's ever been written. Uh, and so, right. So you, you inherently need to be able to like learn structure from quite sparse data. That's correct. And, and theoretically, I mean, the, the deep learning algorithms do do display some capability to do this, right? Like the, um, like it, it's just a fact that, that we're not feeding so many images to these things that we're actually covering a significant fraction of like the image space, but they, they are able to abstract to some degree. Um, to some degree. Yes. But not, not a huge degree. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah. So we, I mean, we've already talked a little bit about like what we think, kind of a real AGI algorithm would have to look like, which is where we were talking about kind of the, the need to be able to fluently transition between the discrete and like dis discrete understanding and reasoning planning and um, this more like continuous uh, parsing of, of large amounts of data. Um, so, In, in, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious, like, I, I want to, I want to know more about the, like, distinguishing, like, how, how big of a gulf do we think there is between, like, the modern, the modern deep learning symbolic reasoning type stuff and, and, um, you know, what it might look like to get to that artificial general intelligence level? Well, I mean, if history is any precedent, it's pretty big. Uh, and, and again, so for example, there was a neural net wave in the eighties and there was all kinds of things that neural nets could do then that no AI system could do before. An example of that was recognizing characters, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so that was great. Uh, and there was a lot of optimism around that, but after a few years, 
the system, the the field plateaued. Like there really wasn't too much new stuff, and mm-hmm. and that happened with the rule based system, symbolic search systems, and and so the history is that'll happen here, and, and it's kind of happening. I mean, if you look at you know most of the sort of conventional natural language other stuff, like if you look at something like Alexa or or Google Assistant or something like that, they're not they're they're more broad. They can basically they've been sort of hooked up to more systems that can talk about more stuff, but the actual complexity and sophistication and subtlety of a conversation with them is about the same as it was five years ago. Um, and so um, my take on it is it's a, pretty big, it's a pretty big golf right now. Another way to put it is that the golf hasn't really gotten any narrower in the last 10 years. Yeah. I, I just think that we just have a new toy to play with and maybe yeah. it's another, and we have another ingredient, but it's going to be a much bigger recipe. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean, what, one thing that comes to mind is like we're, we're currently seeing a lot of progress, but the progress seems to be in of the type of like scaling up the existing algorithms rather than actual algorithmic progress. Like when, when they show sort of these new results in, in language generation or language processing or image generation or whatever, or image transformation, it's like, it's kind of the same old thing. It's just that it's now we have access to so much more compute power and so much more data that we're able to uh, train these things to do these larger and larger tasks. But I think, I think an important thing is like even, even like projecting that out to like very high levels of compute and training, um, you, the, the sort of nature of the task is still this um, function approximation kind of thing where it's like you give it an input it does some transformation on the input. It gives you an output. You know, it's a classification or it's a transformation or whatever, right? And and like just if you think about sort of the just fundamentally what that is, it's not doing the same kind of thing that um, that like a full reasoning system would do, where you'd have much more of like okay, you've got an online. Uh, online like belief system that's updated by sensor data coming in and then um, and and not just like parameterizing a bunch of fixed parameters but also just like changing the ontology of how the world works and then making plans within that ontology to accomplish certain goals you know deftly deftly handling the situation where the ontology has changed and so now you have to like re rejigger like what your goals are the like just just the shape of the thing in terms of like what kind of thing it does is is not um it's like not the shape of of a mind or intelligence or whatever right and so i think that's that's something like that's what makes me the most skeptical on you know when you hear from these uh authoritative kind of people working on current ai techniques they say oh we just need to scale it up more and maybe that'll be that Right. But it's like, no, actually, it's not it's not even really the 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 right shape of algorithm, if you know what I mean, like the right type signature in a way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Or the right parameter space, however you want to put it. Yeah, there's definitely a different it it needs to be a phase shift. You can't just do more of the same. You need to do something very different uh, to get to the next level. Yeah. And that's true in all computer science. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, 
sometimes uh, linked lists will do, but then other times you need to sort of do something much more sophisticated. And so um, that, that, again, it's nothing unusual about AI. It's just, like you said, I think you kind of applied this in a language you use. People have an incentive, you know, everybody's, you know, computer scientists are all, even as young programmers, you're all very sort of enthusiastic that you can do more than you think with, isn't faster than you think. I was like that as well. And so mm-hmm. that's part of it, uh, just a natural sort of enthusiasm, a geeky enthusiasm. But then there's also the, uh, you're rewarded sort of the economic and career incentives are all basically to have maximal claims. Yeah, to to inflate the bubble, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, great. So well, that well, to, to, to go on that specifically, I think that's one of the reasons why so many startups right now either say they're AI based or blockchain based. And right. This, this and and it turns out that uh, in fact all, a lot of the startups are either have nothing to do with AI or actually sneak in some amount of human processing in in what's supposed to be just pure AI. Yeah, or the AI is just like incidental sort of industry standard practice or whatever, and they're just like hyping up that aspect of the thing. Yeah, that's correct. And another sort of uh, take on that also is that most of the stuff that's being called AI now is using sort of methods that five ten years ago were called big data. Um, and right. so, so it's basically, it looks like there's a, like orders of magnitude more AI now, but really there's not, there's just a recharacterization, a rebranding of more things to include AI. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah so that, that gets us to like the health of the field, Yeah. which is like when you have a field sort of inundated with this huge level of hype, um, there's sort of two, two arguments that, that get, that get deployed here to like kind of talk about the health of the field in that case. So one is, um, you know, if there's a lot of attention on a field, a lot of money in the field, a lot of hype in the field, then that creates more resources for the research being done in that field. So it like accelerates progress. On the other hand, there's the, there's the idea that, well, because there's so much money flying around, you actually the the ability of the real research to expand and take that money is not as high as the ability of like grifters and and people who are just rebranding to come in and take that money and and what happens is those people getting all the money ends up redefining what the field is to be what they're doing and then that leads to a collapse in like the the conceptual structure that was supporting the actual real research before. And thus that actually slows down real progress. So like, these are sort of two narratives that I've heard. Um, and, and so I'm curious on your thoughts on that. And then like just jumping into the health of the field in general. Yeah. I really liked how you put the second sort of narrative. I think that's well, well put and, and mostly accurate. I think one, one way of looking at this is the distinction between pre-paradigmatic and paradigmatic science. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and so just from for people Kuhn. who yeah from Kuhn exactly. So just for people who don't know what that is, I mean, there there's sort of physics before Newton, say, and after Newton, and uh, and once sort of Newton came along and created this framework for you know here's what forces are and here's how they work and here's how you can explain a lot of things with them. Before that, there was a bunch of people just doing random stuff. They didn't really build on nothing really built on anything else. But once they came up with the paradigm, this new way of looking at the field and and, and uh, conceiving of it, then lots of incremental things could be added to that that really in a very, um, and they built on each other and they accelerated very quickly. Um, and I think the kind of thinking that it takes to create a paradigm is very different than the kind of thinking it takes to execute within a paradigm. Um, and I think everything you described about, I, I think basically 
the tech right now, uh, tech and science now are all built up for post-paradigmatic uh, work. And um, so I think one way of looking at what you talked about is that all this effort is making it really, really hard. All, all this, um, you're, you're shining so much light on the current paradigm that it's really hard to uh, innovate and to get resources to innovate on a, an additional, on a new paradigm. And it even crowds and takes the, uh, crowds those people out, takes the oxygen away. And so basically in that sense, it impedes progress. So you're getting locally and, and, and in time and space, I guess, a more more uh, progress, I guess, uh, with the way things are going now. But I think long term, it can also be it is probably a, a negative. That's interesting. Yeah. So so like Kuhn's, I just read um, the the structure of scientific revolutions, which is the book we're citing here on on paradigms. Um, and and so it, it's relatively fresh in my mind. But and one of the arguments that I that I sort of recall him making was that, well, you actually need that long period of total focus on the paradigm to really show what it's capable of and then push it to its limits to the point where it actually starts to break and you get a crisis. And that crisis moment is where then people start actually being able to go back and look at the fundamentals. And until you have actually done that huge investment in the paradigm, you don't have... Um, you don't necessarily like have the confidence and the 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 sort of like social conditions for an advance in the paradigm, um, and so that's like an interesting an interesting sort of counterpoint, which is like actually this this huge influx of resources into the current paradigm, um, you know, accelerates that process and and accelerates we we're getting faster to the point where where you know we're going to run out of the capabilities of the current paradigm. And then if we're going to have a really good idea of what it can do and what it can't do. I, I think there's truth to that. Definitely that, that you do need to, uh, and I've seen this in my own work that basically I'll, I'll be working on a particular project and, um, it's after I work on it for a while that I realize, wow, you know, my conception of the way I was working on things needs to change. And it wouldn't have, and unless I really tried to do it uh, and, and yeah. apply it to things, I never would have discovered that. So that's, that's true. Um, on the other hand, the current paradigm we have really is the old paradigm. So like literally neural nets were a big thing in the 80s. Uh, and there are, new, there are obviously changes in the field, but they're not really quanti qualitative. Uh, right. And, and so like this is the flip side of that is, well at the time where you've like gone all in on this one paradigm instead of this other paradigm or fundamental research or whatever, like it may be that doubling down on this paradigm has actually been like premature and, and we sort of know that it's not great and it's just a bunch of foolishness to go chasing it with as many resources as we are. Though I think like it is actually yielding a lot of industrial benefit to be able to like process these enormous amounts of data and, and, and parse their structure. That's correct. If you believe in markets and all the all the investment in the field, you know, is a signal that basically there is some value there. Yeah, but I mean, like, m markets are semi-reliable, especially when there's bubbles. Right, right, and and again, I mean, so a lot of the re a lot of the money that's being spent in AI right now was being spent five years ago, which is called big data. Yeah, um, like like one thing that, especially in investment, I think um, I don't really trust the market because, like, I I used to work in uh, mechanical engineering in green tech. And it was like, okay, everyone's working on these great technologies that might actually be really important. But then on the other hand, like a lot of the money is not there because this thing actually looks like a good idea. It's there because it's like fashionable. 
Um, yeah, there's a lot of that. It, it, and, you know, I mean, there's this, the market's only as good as the flow of information within the market, right? Right. And I think what we have this problem, I think there's a real dysfunction now in the flow of information. That, that And I think this is something that's been happening maybe, you can go as back as 200 years, but I think, like, s since in the last few decades, definitely since World War II, um, science has become much more democratized and broad and mainstream, and technology has, and that... And that the I think that's led to really a, a lower quality of of, of discourse uh, in there. That you have really the same the same kind of intellectual capacity that's being driven towards celebrity gossip columns, and now is being driven towards tech blogs, right? Um, and so if and that wasn't the case in the '60s, say or the '50s. Yeah, well, like like you look at Popular Mechanics from the '60s or something. Like you occasionally see these excerpts, right? And it's it's using technical terms. It's like you know highly intelligent language. It's like, hey, this is something I might actually read. And then you look at these same kind of publications today, and it's just like, oh man, this is like pop science nonsense. That's true. Um, and, and even just to take a step further, that that even then, like real quote unquote real scientists, engineers, they didn't really they looked down to popular science. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, totally. But but like comparing then and now is is like you see this this change in how the public was expected to be able to think. And I might just be, as you're saying, because like the public, um, ha, ha, the definition of like who is the public or like the actual readership of these things has expanded and, and democratized in a way. Yeah. And I think this is related to a really interesting hypothesis I've heard on, like, why have we seen kind of a slowdown in fundamental science in the latter half of the 20th century? Um, and the hypothesis is, well, after the war, we put a huge number of new people and new resources into the scientific um, enterprise. And that, you know, like I was saying with what happened to to the AI field or the hypothesis on what was happening to the AI field, when you dump a huge amount of resources into a space, it's not necessarily the case that the current thing that's working is the most scalable and expandable thing. It, sometimes it's these sort of like fake other things um, that that um, that like can very quickly jump in on that pile of money or just like they don't have to be nefarious at all. It's just like, oh, there's suddenly all this money. And all these people pick it up and start trying to use it, but they don't really know what they're doing. So the field becomes dominated by people who don't really know what they're doing. Um, and, and so, like, I, I think that hypothesis, um, it's, it's a really interesting hypothesis, at least, of, like, what, what happened to science in the 20th century. Yeah, I agree. We look at that sort of like in a history of sort of any kind of boom. So like the spice trade, right, presumably, right? And the people who went and engaged in the spice trade probably didn't know anything about growing spices and, and right. or how they worked. And, and oil, the oil boom, right, in the, in the 80s, right? I mean, basically, a lot of people went into oil um, and they could really care less about oil mining and, 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 and they didn't even understand it. Uh, and likewise, with the finance boom, say, in the 2000s. And so I think we're just tech is becoming that. It's becoming it's the new sort of. Um, fashionable sort of lucrative thing and it's just drawing a lot of uninformed um, people yeah. and yeah and that's that's been going on I think yeah you're right since World War II because that's when the money started coming in I mean another way to look at it is from the view of personality theory that you know I, I personally believe a lot in things like Myers-Briggs and so forth and, and right. uh, I think the personality type that sort of does core solid innovative science is very different than the, the personality type that succeeds in an institution so the more institutional something becomes, actually, um, the more the uh, the more uh, innovation is going to be suppressed. Yeah, like like you see, sort of uh, this interesting change in language in the physics community and and just general science, where like 
sort of in in previous times you almost see it referred to as like this sort of fraternity of physicists and you you get this impression of like a loose a loose kind of association of these sort of like cowboy types who are just they're 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 kind of doing their own thing they're doing their own research they're not necessarily affiliated with any kind of strong institutional structure um and then they come together for conferences to like trade ideas and so on but it seems almost like a very private uh like like they're not they don't have the public standing that i think the the current and and the institutionalization that the current thing has and then the the current shape of these fields is much more like okay there's lots of people working in lots of labs and lots of universities and like it's all very formalized it's all very high status it's not like a bunch of smart guys kind of talking to each other in the back room it's so it's like the the character now i'm i'm butchering the history here right but but like the i think i think um the the general shift in the character of the field towards more um more like public scrutiny and more institutionalization is something that's definitely happened. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think, I think, um, you know, it's a real, I think, so I, you know, markets are really powerful. They, they do have some benefits. So for example, you know, if you want widgets, uh, to be in people want widgets, they're going to get a lot of widgets they are going to be cheap and they're going to be done well, but markets will do that for you as long as you can build a widget in a year, uh, or design a widget in a year. But th- once, once things become 10 years, there's a long horizon, um, and are fairly unpredictable, um, then there's a problem there. And I think what we, what's, so there's, you have a lot of people who've had success sort of in, in, in sort of normal economic, in normal ventures and startups who are now funding a lot of science and they don't, I, and, and the problem is that, uh, first of all, the, the personality succeeds in one is different than the other, but the other problem yeah. is they have no way of evaluating. Um, and yeah. I think if somebody could figure out how to evaluate science, that, <laughs> that would be amazing. And the current numbers, things like, you know, citation counts are very dysfunctional. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. The, the current way we, we measure science is, is completely dysfunctional. Um, so I guess that, that covers like the, the general state of the field. Like, like I, I I don't want to be too harsh on things like, you know, obviously there is some, some real stuff going on and, and I think it's like interesting to watch it, but, but there is like this, this very, uh, a lot of hype, a lot of hype going on. One thing I, that I would distinguish is like, you hear this narrative sometimes, People say, oh, well, all the, uh, I, I alluded to this earlier, all the resources and all the scaling we're putting into the current algorithms will help us identify the limitations of those algorithms and thus move on to like the next, uh, the next paradigm. But I'm actually kind of skeptical of that. Like, I, I, I'm, I don't think that like the key improvement that, that like unifies deep learning with planning with symbolic reasoning or whatever is the next thing is going to come from like improved scale on, on, on deep learning. It, it seems more like you actually do need this other type of research that goes on. And I think, and I'm curious, like, so, so it sounds like you were trying to do that back, back in the nineties and, and, and early two thousands. Um, I'm curious, like, you're given your visibility into the field. Like, are there labs kind of doing good work in that area or is it mostly dominated by the hype or, or what, like, like just overall, what's, what's kind of like the, the state of, of the research in terms of like, are the right activities being, being undertaken? 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I, one way to talk about that is I got my um, professorship in 2004. Uh, and I think I was one of the last professors I know of, uh, who got mm -hmm. in the US at least, who got a job doing anything having to do with symbolic AI. Uh, right. And even that was a huge challenge at the time. And so, um, so, and there are a lot of labs that do a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, it's, they're mostly old. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, right. <laughs> they're just, they've just been around for a long time and they're retiring now and so forth. And so there's a lot of sort of awakening within a lot of parts of, of, um, of, deep learning, machine learning, that there is some need for addressing some of these other problems. But right. their general approach is to just find a way to you know, structure the data or, or structure the neural network to get that. So it's basically, there's a recognition that, that, that there's, there's, a, there's a sort of a, maybe the first beginnings of a recognition of a crisis, but still the reaction is to just extend the current paradigm to sort of yeah. solve the crisis. Yeah, and, and I could see how like, people could get the impression that the current paradigm is yielding a lot of research progress. Like, like I've sort of followed some of the, some of the research and it's like, Oh, they've, they figured out like new ways to apply the kind of neural network paradigm with, with new, uh, new structure to the networks that allows them to do like interesting new things. Like I saw recently, someone did like Hamiltonian neural networks that are able to learn things about like conservation of energy and thus like simulate systems that, that, uh, have conservation laws um, in in a way like much better than than previous things or like um, you know new ways of integrating the neural network type stuff with planning to make it more able to just like have a robot or whatever that that uh, works in some simulation and, and figures things out on the go and and like these things look kind of like progress they look kind of like the the right sort of progress so I'm and I you know I'm I don't have the confidence to say like oh that's not going to work or like that's definitely going to work um it just looks sort of plausible to me right that that like hey maybe this is what progress actually looks like um I'm a little bit skeptical but you know I'm I'm not enough of an expert to be like actually that's not how it is um and so I could definitely imagine how how like the current paradigm still has enough enough momentum to to be taking up a lot of attention. Like it, it does look like there's some good stuff being done in it. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is like as things plateau. I mean, things plateaued in the eighties and, and there was this AI winter. Um, I think what's changed since then is a, a lot of historical ignorance that literally, um, right. People always for, just forget what yeah. the last generation did. Yeah. They forget that, but they also forget like what this generation claimed they were doing five years ago. So uh, there's very little accountability um, now compared to the past, I think. So it could and just... is that is that because like there's just so much new attention and so many new people coming into the field who like haven't been around for a while and they don't have a chance to get like initiated or what's that coming from? Where's that where's that loss of memory coming from? You know, I see that throughout all of. Silicon Valley, especially, you know, meaning the greater San Francisco Bay Area tech uh, industry. Uh, yeah. That And, um, you know, I've thought about that. I don't really know, honestly, exactly what the answer is. Par partly what you said, there's this whole new wave of people coming in who think everything's new. I think part of it is just that there's just a lack of intellectual seriousness, frankly. I mean, literally, the, you know, uh, used to be that people will write, like Henry Kissinger, for example, will write an article about, about um, you know, about uh, um, AI and... Uh, there's all kinds of people like that who who 
have made a distinctive for themselves in some part of life, but now feel like they can pronounce things about AI. And I'm sure that happens through all of tech uh, and through all of society. And uh, I think there's just a lot more of that now than it used to be. And it's good in a way because basically not, you know, the, the received authorities aren't the only people who have something interesting to say. I, I don't believe in sort of the, you know, the, there is a fallacy of authority that you learn about in sort of critical thinking classes. But at the same time, the downside of that is that, um, you know, people aren't expected to know what happened uh, in the past and the way they were even 10, 20 years ago. Interesting. So uh, on the Kissinger article, that's something like we were kind of reading that to to prepare for this, like because, you know, Kissinger is obviously a pretty important guy. And so when he says, oh, actually, this new this new strategic technology is going to be really important, it's going to transform technology, transform society like he's he's looked at these these like the impact of these technologies before, like a lot of his work was on. Um, I believe the the impact of atomic weaponry, um, and so like you know on priors you you kind of take the guy seriously. It's like oh I, Henry Kissinger is going to say something about AI. You know let's let's actually listen to that. Um, so I'm curious whether you have um, particular thoughts on on his engagement with AI. I, I've just been reading it and it's like some of it seems right and some of it seems like just the usual kind of narrative that isn't very deep or technically informed. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much of it is like, you know, he's kind of being Straussian in what he's saying. He's just going along with the, the mainstream way of thinking about it because, uh, you know, because that's kind of what gets play versus, versus like, is that actually how he's thinking about it? Um, I, so I'm curious yeah. about your thoughts on that article and 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 his thoughts on AI. Like you, I think it's a mix. I, I think, um, you know, the thing about the nuclear nuclear proliferation, for example. I mean, people were basing their concerns about what nuclear technology actually could do now, um, and so you know. You know, right. you know, and so basically they're what they weren't based on a speculation about how nuclear weapons are going to be a thousand times more powerful in 10 years. Um, whereas if you look at Kissinger's article explicitly, he talks, it's not about sort of, oh, you know, go people, people who play go are out of work now. It's more um, a, a bet that we can extrapolate the go progress to the rest of intelligence. And so. Right. That's the difference that I think, you know, he's wrong about that. Understand yeah, and without without a lot of internal structure, actually, to to that extrapolation like that. That's one thing that I that I that I see or, and I or that I don't see is like when, when people are making these extrapolations, a lot of the time it's like. Um, like, I can't really actually imagine a possible world where where the thing that they're extrapolating actually happens. Sometimes it sometimes it it is real, but. But I think in in that case, I had a hard time actually kind of like imagining uh, the, the imagining like current current techniques like the go thing kind of leading to to certain outcomes. That's right. If you if you grant them the ex extrapolation, then I think his thoughts become much more sound. Right. Uh, that basically, if you really right. do believe there's going to be massive human level self learning autonomous intelligence, then that's soon. Uh, then that's an issue. Um, yeah, yeah, and and I guess like to to concretize what I'm what I'm like taking issue with in that extrapolation, it's it is precisely the extrapolation of current techniques to that autonomous human level general intelligence. It's like it just kind of doesn't look like that's the direction the thing is going. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And um, again, a little bit of history would help. That that basically within AI, you know. The, the, 
chess, you know, in the nineties, uh, deep blue beat the human grandmaster. Uh, the, the, it was the best chess player in the world. People made similar kinds of arguments. Then it was a less hypey sort of media environment. So it was less of it, but it was still the same kind of thing. Um, and also this idea that, you know, uh, you know, AI is going to put people out of work again, short of human level AI, that's going to happen anytime, which is not going to happen anytime soon. Probably that's again, historically ignorant. I mean, basically, um, AI has been putting people out of work now for 50 years to some extent, right? Uh, the, the, right. the term computer was a job description in England. Well, right? this is this is almost like the, the purpose of technology is actually to put people out of work yeah. in, in a way, right? It's like the purpose of technology is labor saving, right? It's like, okay, well, now now we don't have to spend money on, on this guy's salary, which also means he is freed up to go do something else and total kind of wealth and buying power of society goes up. So, and that's like, that's a process that's been going on forever. That's right. And his new um, job, he'll be more productive because he has technology working yeah. with him and therefore he'll make more actually, or at least his children will. Yeah. Or I, I mean, he won't necessarily make more because he switches to, to the jobs because like the current thing got outsourced. It's right. like in the long run, there's more wealth available, but I think it's always like the older job was, was more lucrative than the new job. But I think the buying power goes up. Yeah, so you're it's, saying it's it's like the, the economics are a little bit tricky to think through, but but like it does seem to yield um, improvements in in wealth, even for a lot of the people put out of work in the long run. But in the short run, they are taking a hit. Some are. That's correct. But but again, I mean, if you look at since the industrial revolution, people have been worried about automation at least and. The unemployment rate has gone down pretty steadily, probably since then. Uh, and um, yeah, so, though yeah. though it's like hard to hard to really know what the unemployment rate means given given the manipulations we do with that statistic and things like like labor force participation is is also uh, sure sure like like that's sort of a, no, no, a potentially true. more interesting number, and that one goes kind of more all over the place. It's true, but but the sense of I mean the big picture being that buying power definitely has gone up as you as you said, and um, yeah. there aren't famines and people going out of work and so forth. Yeah, I mean, though, though I mean I've been recently sort of uh, I've been reading Thoreau uh, Henry David Thoreau recently, and and like one of his big arguments this is like total aside, but on the buying power thing, one of his big arguments seems to be that like people have this enormous amount of buying power in in civilization, but we almost immediately waste it on frivolous things that we don't need such that we end up actually in a state of economic desperation despite having this enormous buying power so it's like anyways i i just have to put that in there whenever whenever we mention like okay increasing buying power over time it's it's there there is this like other side to that which is like are we actually buying things that we need or are we just like buying bigger houses that we don't really need um, yeah, you could that's, definitely. That's, like that's right. People aside. used to say that when <laughs> new, when people had more leisure time, there would be better. There would be more artists and so forth. And really, there's been just more junk art. Um, and yeah, so, or like more video game playing. And exactly. Stuff. Like, exactly. Like like the basic the basic issue is like people are not philosophers. Like the vast majority of people right. are not philosophers. And this actually gets back to something I wanted to say previously that I uh, forgot, which is the. Um, on the market, it's like we have a lot of money, we have a lot of investors, but we don't have a lot of original investors, right? And and what really n is needed to make 
the market have good information is you need these people who are actually capable of doing original thought and and turning the sort of like raw streams of information they see into novel insight and and like in some fields that works great like optimizing existing processes and so on um and in other areas it's like that that's actually really difficult and and the process of being able to organize human minds to produce knowledge is like that's the difficult part the difficult part is not aggregating their information once they've done that um and and so that's like another dimension of of like the weakness of the market on on some of these uh longer term investment tasks yeah i think you saw a lot of that in crypto actually where there were a lot of crypto you know a lot of there were some original investors there and they were visionary, obviously, or lucky. But 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 then you look at um, the, the follow on investors really would invest in projects. They had no idea what was going on at all. Um, yeah, it's just it's just money sloshing around with with not a lot of rationality behind it. Well, there's secondary signals like who else is investing and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. If there's too much of that, you're right. That basically it gets out of control. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I want to make an interesting I want to make an interesting point about uh, employment, which is that. Uh, our generation seems kind of qualitatively different than previous generations, even though previous generations have also undergone a lot of technological uh, revolutions. For instance, uh, a lot of our parents and grandfathers, for example, uh, despite all of the innovations, uh, were often able to work for the same company their entire lives. And there seems to now be a level of, of churn now both technologically and and in terms of of companies as well that doesn't allow for that and i think excessive churn can be quite damaging as well because you know the process i've i've found like if you look at it from a sociological perspective and you talk to job applicants and so on the process of continually being out of work and and going back to the workforce again is very like psychologically traumatizing and so i think when you're trying to create an order that uh, enables maximum human flourishing. You don't want too much human churn when you're coming up with innovations and so on. Yeah, well, people people need stability in their lives to be able to build like long term plans and and Families. social fabric and so yeah. on. And like and even the social fabric, like the the informal social fabric within a company, right, is is something that really got gutted through that transition. Um, I I don't know how to really evaluate all that stuff. I'd love to like look into it and, and learn more, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to make strong definitely claims a, right now. Yeah, definitely a topic for another podcast for sure. Yeah. So, but, but getting at, we've been like skirting around uh, the general issue now of like, okay, how are current level AI technologies going to affect society? Um, so we've talked a little bit about the employment concern. So like you have guys like Andrew Yang and, and um, Sam Altman, talking about, you know, current uh, automation technologies are sufficient to replace billions of current workers, and that's going to create mass unemployment. Therefore, we need to uh, get people on like UBI or whatever, because there isn't going to be enough work. And then you have these other arguments on the other hand, which is like, well, actually, the automation seems to be not working, like um, people are not able to automate things as well as they want to. Um, and, And a lot of things that you know, people were saying we're going to be automated, like aren't automated. You have a lot of stuff that's being done by humans. And then the other thing is 
it's like, okay, that's nice. People aren't going to have to do that job and the robots are going to do it for them. But there's still a lot of potholes to fill and buildings to paint and stuff that isn't being done. And, you know, actual unemployment is very low. Um, So like actually squaring, squaring these, these claims that like, okay, we're on the verge of mass unemployment due to technology, but also like we have labor shortage and like there's so much stuff that really ought to be done that isn't being done like these are these are sort of like hard things to square and and my hunch is that like the the employment concern is is kind of fake like yeah it's going to cause a lot of churn it's going to disrupt a lot of things um as technological progress tends to do but i i think um in terms of finding useful things to do with with uh humans um, I, I don't think we're likely to, to run into like, uh, a shortage of, of work. I, I think that's right. I think, again, unless you have this human level AI, that's going to happen soon, which is not. Yeah. We're um, at, at the point where you get yeah. like human level AI that can, that can replace humans yeah. like fully, uh, not, not at a particular task, but like replace the, the labor of a human for much cheaper then uh, at that point you can start talking about, okay, now we're talking about replacement and, and driving the wages of, of humans way down and stuff like that. But, but until then, I think, I think the argument doesn't work. I agree with that. I think, you know, people talk about sort of technological capitalism being, uh, you know, waves of creative destruction. And uh, that's been going on again, two, 250, 200, 250 years. And uh, it'll keep happening. Uh, but I don't think at any any, I don't, and, and, and a lot of the problems you talked about, about sort of churning your employment and so forth, that'll keep happening. It's been happening for a while. I just think it'll just keep happening uh, sort of at the same, maybe even accelerating pace it's been happening. But And tech will be, and AI might be sort of part of the mechanism of that, but it's been happening for a long time. So I don't think we'll have anything qualitatively that, that new there. I mean, I'm more worried about... Yeah, on, so on the other hand, like... Um, the argument, the argument that we've given for like, okay, why is this not going to cause a big employment disruption is, is sort of a long-termist argument that like, okay, we're going to be able to find things to do with all the people. Um, but on the other hand, you do have these historical periods. Uh, we had an article on the, on this, on, on the, what's called the Engels pause or Engels pause, um, where, for some time in i think the early 19th century the returns on investment in capital were much higher than the returns on uh competing for labor such that most free capital went into investment uh most free like liquid capital investment money went into investments in in productive capital like machinery and so on rather than competing for workers and thus you had a despite high productivity growth high economic growth you actually had um stagnant and declining um wages um and and sort of like some people have hypothesized that this is going to happen again or like has been happening um and and that can potentially cause a lot of social problems even if it's not sort of long-term permanent unemployment it's it's this like a, 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 a medium-term depressed uh, demand for um, human capital. Yeah, so there's a couple things to be said on the social problems, right? Uh, in terms of the pure numerical amount of jobs, I, I kind of think that that's a little bit 
besides the beside the point because number one there's there's suitability so we've been moving more away from sort of like a manufacturing industrial base to a service sector economy not everyone is going to be suitable to that I, I tend to think that there are sort of like natural categories in society of people who are who who would much prefer to do uh, blue-collar sort of work uh, and then of course then there's capabilities uh, mm -hmm. you know job requirements for service sector uh, posi positions uh, could be ratcheting up in terms of like you know cognitive requirements and of course uh, not everyone can be like a physicist not everyone can be a software engineer a lot of you know and i think that's something a lot of the people in the bay tend to miss because you know we do have a collection of very smart people who are pretty much capable of you know, one day becoming a software engineer, you know, another day uh, hosting a podcast, running a magazine, doing startups, this and that. Uh, for the rest of America, I think that's less the case. And so, you know, uh, I, I think it's still less... a lot of potholes to be filled. I, I, <laughs> I bent, bent the wheel on my bike in a pothole. So I'm well, going to just no, go no, on but... and on about the pothole no, issue. No, no. Yeah, yeah. But that's very different from, say, like uh, market run investment, market driven yeah. investment. Uh, in such cases, you may need to see the return of, of uh, like civic, like American Civic Corps programs, uh, something like this to make up the slack. That that's very because pot, potholes are not exactly a, a market-driven process, since we all know who has charge over the roads. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that that's a good point. Like it might be that you get market unemployment, but there's still a lot of useful stuff for people to do, and that actually requires some state capacity to redeploy that that labor. Um, and, and that actually, one of the fears, I guess, is that that's currently beyond us. Like we don't actually have the state capacity to get people to fill potholes. Well, um, not, not only that is, is I think those programs would be somewhat politically controversial now in a way that they, they wouldn't have been as much uh, maybe some time ago. Right. Well, yeah, it's like as you get kind of like weakening elite capacity, weakening state capacity, weakening, weakening coherence among the political classes – um, it becomes much more difficult to do anything without a lot of controversy. This reminds me of uh, a, a recent feature I read, I believe in, I can't remember if it was New York Magazine, something like that, where they talked about a program that was deployed in West Virginia to essentially get uh, like uneducated blue collar workers into software engineering positions. So it was kind of like a sort of, uh, a sort of learn lambda school, very learn to code lambda school. But of course, I have only good things to say about lambda, and and not so good things to say about this. But uh, <laughs> lambda is not exactly uh, you know dropping down in West Virginia and saying anyone can just come in and, and we'll take anyone and we'll go from there. Uh, so in, in this case, in West Virginia, the program was an absolute disaster. Uh, the money was essentially like set on fire. And I think maybe one person got a software engineering position, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, my, mind you, like th these, the success of these programs is like so much based on the competence and, and, and the approach of the people running them. So it could no very doubt, well no be doubt. that like it fails, like something that fails with, with some, some people who are like, you know, admittedly difficult uh you know it fails with with one leadership and then like maybe in 10 years lambda school has scaled up and like they roll in and and they can actually deal with those people um i guess we'll see 
Yes, I mean, certainly I, I tend to uh, ha have a, not rosy isn't the right word, a, a, a more sanguine view of uh, make work programs in a certain sense, because the economic inefficiency, inefficiencies generated by that are, are so unbelievably small to inefficiencies overall that it's a drop in the bucket. And well, especially compared to like, compared to the difficulties created by a large unemployed class. That's, that's exactly right. I, I think people often don't, don't, uh, they overlook the, the social costs of extended unemployment. And, you know, this is well, kind of like, like one, one dimension, <laughs> one, one dimension of that is like, imagine, imagine we had UBI, right? Like they put us on our, on our thousand dollars a month. Um, like, what are people going to do with that? Well, like, I'm not one, a, support, one thing I'm not a we supporter do, of UBI. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I mean, like, as as compared to, like, a make work program, the thing about UBI is, like, I, I think we've joked before that, like, well, what UBI does is leads to unrestricted tribal warfare because suddenly, like, people can't get fired. And, like, you just have free resources for like any anon on the internet to like do whatever they want um and and like you know all you got to do is move out of a big city and and you live like a king on your thousand dollars a month uh you know trolling the internet so like that that could it could actually create a lot of social problems by just like right. suddenly liberating all this all this like human agency that that actually the system was relying on on not being liberated maybe that would be a good thing in the long run but but like it might also be very disruptive the the real thing is is people mostly don't know what to do with themselves and and this is kind of indicated by the fact that you know people will take some time off of work or some time off of school and and they'll say you know I have I have all these like 10 20 30 40 goals or you know new year's resolutions I have all these new year's resolutions and they tend not to be able to execute on any of those things. And that's because I think personality-wise, uh, going what, back to what Nick was saying before, uh, maybe MBTI or, or other big five personality tests or so on, uh, most people, I think, are not self-driven enough to be able to be their own, um, their own bosses, so to speak. And so the social and cultural function of going into work and, you know, maybe it's not particularly economically efficient, but it does solve some kind of need, whether filling potholes or, or yeah. something else. I'm sure, like, we, we have no lack of, of brainstorming on, on that that we could come up with. Yeah, uh, but, but getting, so getting back, like, I don't want to, I don't want to sure, fuddle sure. around in the, in the employment issue too much, but getting back to the AI, how does AI affect society question? I mean, uh, one, one sort of segue between, uh, what you're just saying, and and that is, like, like you're saying, people need social structure to right, that's right to give them even the agency to be able to handle certain types of tasks. And on their own, we're not really going to invent this on for ourselves. And and so, like one one kind of concern that I have, um, I don't know if it's a concern or like a, maybe a prediction, is is that like. AI over time will like as we get 
variation in the ability to like organize human labor to do a certain task at, at a low point in, in the ability to organize human labor for a task, um, we'll get kind of AI automation things coming in and replacing that. And then that actually means that, um, like you, you lose, like you kind of lose the ability to organize people to do that thing by, by sort of atrophy. Right. And, and I know maybe that's a good thing, right? It's like, we've also lost the ability to have people like sort of pull a plow manually and, and like some other stuff that we don't actually want to be doing. But I, I do kind of worry somewhat about the long-term effects of, um, the, the sort of ability to, to sort of, uh, easily replace lost social capacity. Though I'm not sure, it doesn't, it doesn't get fully replaced, I guess. There's, there's plowing and then there's also fine craftsmanship. Yeah, right. Which is, which is something that we've, we have kind of lost and it, it doesn't appear to be replaced by machines doing it or anything. These are real problems. I would just say that they're not, they're automation and tech technology, technology problems, not AI specific. I mean, it's Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's get back, let's get back to like AI as such. Um, so the, the the other big dimension of of like um social impact besides employment things which i i i mean we've spent like the last 20 minutes saying basically it's not a real issue um the other one is ai seems very centralizable seems likely to massively centralize wealth and power to the people who are actually in control of these huge data streams and software capacity and compute capacity like you know, the ability of Google to like know what everyone has been thinking about and do lots of computing on that with these like algorithms that look for patterns and and structure in that data. Like that's, that's a very powerful thing or the ability for Facebook to like massively scale an editorial policy to like what people are able to say to their friends and stuff. Um, that's like a very centralizing effect on society. You centralize sort of political power, like control even of, of people's political opinions. Um, and, and you centralize wealth because there's like uh, these few entities that are able to really take advantage of, of these capabilities and, and replace a lot of previously local social structure. Yeah. I, and I so think, like, go, go on. Well, I was going to say that, that there's a lot of historical precedent there. I mean, if you look at, sort of the totalitarian regimes and the sort of genocides of the mid-20th century, they were all enabled by technology. They would have been impossible for Napoleon, for example, to, to, to have, exec- to have uh, conducted. And um, Yeah, you, so you get, these, you get these periods of like very high technological centralization right. uh, followed by a, often disasters because the state has not let, yet learned to wield that power, right, in a, in a disciplined and orderly way. So, like, you know, we get the ability to do mass conscription and, and firearms. Um, Atomic to, weapons. What, what, well, I'm talking about, like, the, the Napoleon situation. Oh, sure, like, yeah. Like, with Napoleon, it's like suddenly we have the ability to mass conscript and, and raise these huge armies with standard weapons and, and standard equipment and standard logistics and so on. And, you know, so you get some guys like, I'm just going to use this to take over the world. Um, and he does for a while. Um, it's basically, you know, in many ways, a disaster. It creates a big mess, 
um, that has to be kind of cleaned up and, and uh, states learn to discipline that power over time. Um, and then, you know, like you're saying, early 20th century, you have like radio and uh, mechanization of, of mobility and so on. And suddenly, um, suddenly see some, some new things are possible and we haven't yet learned to, to discipline that power. And so I think we're kind of likely to see some similar things happening with AI, where AI is this like strongly centralizing technology, um, at least in a lot of ways. And, and, um, you know, it, it could, it could very severely, um, dis- disrupt kind of a lot of our local structures. I think that's right. And, and, um, you know, if you look at a lot of these social media platforms, they actually have a economic incentive to create sort of the, the mechanisms to do this. So um, to target ads correctly, you really need to know at a very fine-tuned level what people's demographics are and know at a really... And like, what are they thinking about today? And how to push their <laughs> buttons. Yeah. Yeah. And and so they literally have an economic... They literally have all the power of like American capitalism to create, which is, you know, awesome sometimes to, to create, um, the you know, guided towards that um, sort of goal. And it's very easy with very little extra work to use that to manipulate public opinion, to suppress public opinion. Just a, a very simple thing. I mean, if you're Facebook, you, you can... Before an election, um, you can uh, decide you want to favor one party versus another. You know what zip codes vote for what your party versus another. You just put a little bit more election news in those districts. It's, it's a very yeah, simple or it's thing like, to do. It's, that, that's, like, that's so crude compared to the stuff they can actually do. Like, yeah. It's like they know exactly who you are and what your political opinions are. It's just and – like, and, and they don't even have to – it's like, oh, they serve ads to you about this or not. It's like – I mean, that's one thing. It's like, oh, you have the wrong opinion. Maybe we'll serve you some of these ads for, you know, that that sort of disrupt your thinking and, and break your morale a little bit. Um, but also just like, you know, oh, you're you're this kind of guy and you're posting this kind of link. And that is sort of associated with something we don't like right now. So we're going to, you know, nerf the virality of that link. You know, fewer of your friends are going to see it. Fewer people are going to, you know, repost it and so on. And um or maybe maybe it it gets flagged and taken down um and and so like you know like this isn't quite happening to to a really dystopian degree yet but it very easily could and there's a lot of pressure to go in that direction um well, there is evidence and it's like good there is evidence that it is happening yeah yeah no i mean i mean we see we see a lot of this happening just like not not at the scale and openness that that you could imagine um, and, but one thing that I think is worth saying here is like, it's, it's, you know, it's understandable actually why people would want this power deployed. It's like, look, there's, there is a lot of social chaos that happens when like everyone's allowed to just talk to each other, but whatever, and share all their crazy conspiracy theories and so on. Um, and, and like in a democracy that can directly lead to political issues, um, like, like, you know, a lot of people see Trump this way, right? It's like, oh, Trump was, was sort of enabled by these bubbles on the internet and, and, you know, people being insufficiently educated, which is to say, like, not reading the right news. Um, and, and like, I, I can see why a lot of smart, educated, otherwise, like, good people want, want these things deployed. Um, and, and sort of like, and like in the long run, I think we will find maybe um, 
orderly and, and valuable ways to deploy those capabilities. But one of the things that I think is really interesting here is like technology is creating the ability to centralize control of mass political opinion in, in new ways. Um, and like the flip side of this is sort of the, the like Russia propaganda manipulation type ideas where it's like, okay, well, well, it's not just like, you know, well-intentioned domestic people who are deploying this, this stuff. It's also like foreign states who, who can find ways to manipulate people, like do this central manipulation of political opinion to affect elections. So I think one of the big things to take away from that is like, this in many ways invalidates some of the premises of democracy and it, it's going to be an interesting challenge for like for democracy when it becomes like more and more well known that the the way you maintain a hold on on power in uh in the west and in america is by um like successfully centralizing the the control of political opinion of of your base and like defending them from sort of enemy propaganda and so on it just becomes this like very different game that that like is no longer meaningfully democratic and i think that's this is one of the things that i kind of expect to uh change um change how um like change the paradigm, like, you know, at Palladium, we talk about how the the political paradigm is going to have to change. Well, I think this is one of the things that, that these, these uh, new technologies, AI, especially is invalidating some of the assumptions of, um, of the previous paradigm quite forcibly. And actually, this is one of the points that Kissinger was making in his essay was that like, look, the, this, the, this AI stuff that's highly predictive and highly manipulative invalidates the, assumption uh like quite badly invalidates the assumption of like rational individuals um in in a political community and well-informed rational individuals too right i mean you mentioned like if it becomes well known that there's a centralized power um but the problem is these centralized powers are the people in charge of what becomes well known um right and so i think that's actually something unique i mean We've had centralized sort of non-governmental powers before in the U.S. Uh, you know, that's the monopoly and trust busting. That was all, what that was all about. But they didn't have a monopoly on on communication. Uh, and that it's a it's a it's a it's a more pressing and acute and uh, it's it's a new wrinkle on things that make it, I think, needs to be thought of more. It makes it need to be thought of more carefully. Yeah. And, and so, like, exactly like this is these are big issues that we need to be able to uh, think through coherently, like, okay, well, what does this actually mean, um, for, for how the state should be structured in the 21st century? Like, this is, this is what I was getting at with, you know, when we were talking about some of the previous disasters of this type, you get these periods where there's this new power unleashed on society that has not yet been sort of understood. And, um, and disciplined and and integrated into the other powers of society and the state. And thus it ends up deployed in these, these really weird ways that can often be really destructive. Um, and I think, again, we're likely to see that with, with some of this really highly centralizing uh, AI powered kind of like mass, mass mind control type stuff. Um, 
and I, I'm sort of like, again, I'm, I think that there are good ways to deploy this. I don't think it's just like purely, oh yeah, this is just going to be a bad thing. I think it's like, maybe it's going to lead to some temporary disruption, but the more we can get out ahead of it and understand it and think, how is this, how does this power look like when it's being used well by an orderly, um, political community, um, the more we can do that, the, the kind of smoother, I think that transition can go with like less, less, uh, destruction. Yeah, it definitely needs a lot of thought. I, I think one of the issues is that, you know, this is not an original idea, but, but the, the pace of change in technology and media is so fast and the pace of action by states is so slow that, you know, you don't want to put all your eggs in that that basket, even to the extent you, you sort of trust the state to do something um, that's going to be, you know, productive and rational. Yeah. And, and um, this is one of the key, this is one of the key issues that like how and why the state needs to discipline power is, is it needs to make sure that you don't have huge powers in society running around in ways that are more dynamic than the state. Um, because if you do have huge powers running around in society that are more dynamic than the state, well, those things like, you know, they they um, get inside the, the sort of reaction loop of the state and, and are able to outmaneuver the state and cause a lot of civic problems. Um, and, and so one of the things that we discussed in the article that we had on like social media and how social media helps centralize uh, opinion crafting is the one of the things that gets done to curtail the ability of these powers to to sort of operate in a centralized way is the state actually uh, forcibly decentralizes certain powers that it can't um, it can't like subsume into itself in an orderly way. Right. And, and that's a good thing. I think one of the sort of optimistic things is that people are barely like you alluded to earlier, they're just starting to wake up to some of these issues. And uh, there are lots of, um, people out there, you know, lots of billionaires out there were putting a lot of money into sort of their, their political and social agenda. And, right. I, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that could be done that isn't being done. Just a very simple thing. Like everybody, there's, we're as guilty of this as anybody else, but everybody who looks out and sees there's a concern that there are all these sort of large centralized media powers. Well, why don't they put their social media on smaller social networks, right? Just to support them, right? Just to sort of, and if we did that all in mass, I think that could create competing centers of power and so yeah but but the 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 key word is if we did that all on mass in other words if we had some system of centralized coordination to uh compete with the current system of centralized coordination no it's um, it's true but i think if if uh it, it's true there's no doubt about that but hopefully like if things like the palladium sort of magazine podcasts get more right. widely known and, and people start talking about it more and people just put more i think what people miss a lot about social change happens a lot through you know, community organizers, quote unquote. Um, and that's funded by people, um, whether it's yeah. some foreign states or people internally who have an, an agenda. And I think there's a lot less of that now being. So I think if the people who do that sort of do it sort of to solve this problem or to, to address this problem, I'm not saying it's going to solve the problem, but it, at least it's something to try. Like people are barely even trying to solve the problem right now. I mean, what, what well, if, I think, you know, no, I think there's a lot of people looking at it. Um, but I mean, it's just going to take time. And and as for like how Palladium fits into sort of like the these these transitions and, and power structures and, and potential competing power structures, like I, I want to be very firm that Palladium is a supporter of the current regime and power structure. <laughs> um, 
And like, we, we have no intention to build like competing power structures. What we have, what we're trying to do is build understanding of the issues so that people, you know, within the current power structure and, and people like coming up into that thing, like have a better and more informed worldview of, of just like how to use that, these, these, these powers that are coming into society uh, and coming onto our plate, how to use that stuff responsibly and how to organize it. Um, that's really our aim, right? It's like we see ourselves as as sort of like this this project um, kind of not necessarily reporting to, but but in a sense loyal to the existing power structure. Um, but we're we're doing a little bit of like um, sort of self criticism of of how how our um, current kind of elite thinkers conceive of these things to try to like stimulate um just just better ways of approaching these problems um yeah so i, I just want to like make that point because i actually do think that's important a lot of people especially in america are very fond of thinking in terms of like oh yeah man we just need to like decentralize the power and like uh, you know, created an alternate power structure or whatever. And I, I actually don't think that works. Um, like you said, a lot of this stuff happens by people getting funding. Well, all the funding is like reasonably well coordinated by the current power structure. Um, and, and so you're not going to get very far by going up against that. Um, so, so yeah, I just wanted to make that point. I think it's really right. important. And uh, with with that, I think that's a that's a good natural ending point of the podcast. This has been an excellent podcast about artificial intelligence and unemployment and all sorts of things. Which, you know, this is it's great because I've I've wanted Palladium to go down this direction for some time. So this is a good first foray into the subject with uh, hopefully much more to come. Yeah, we're de- we're definitely going to have to hit this topic a lot because there's a huge amount to discuss here in terms of what can be done with AI, what it's going to do to society. We didn't get a chance to talk about the military implications, the geopolitical implications of AI in terms of like states getting in control of, of sort of increasingly powerful technologies in this area. There's so much to discuss. Um, uh, and, you know, maybe some of those discussions will be with Nick again um, or, or other people we find. We're really looking forward to that. But yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Nick, one day there could be... Uh, a time when China and the U.S. are dueling over your dead body. How, how does that make you feel? <laughs> honored, I guess. Honored, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're, right. they're dueling. They're dueling over the rights to like deconstruct it and steal his memories and yeah. integrate it into their data streams. Like this AI stuff can get really creepy. That's the yeah, wrong. Yeah. That's the wrong way to achieve immortality. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Nick, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. It okay, was, guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Uh, and for everyone else, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week.